thank you for the warm welcome this morning. Um, our family have identified that people in your congregation know my parents and Tessa's parents as well. So we felt very welcome and already connected with your church community. Um, I'll just quickly introduce my wife Tess at the back there. And uh, we've got our two boys with us today, Elliot and Josh. And if you looked closely, you might have recognised that we're expecting number three. So if I could ask you to hold off for half an hour, Tess, and not go into labour, that would be appreciated. Um, It is a joy to be here with you today. We usually uh, worship with uh, West Croydon United Church. And uh, their services begin at 10 o'clock, so today was quite the sleeping for us. We did enjoy the slow morning. Uh, But it has been great to be part of this service and being uh, pointed to Christ his death for us um, and just the rich um, leading that Rachel and Tim had for us today. Um, I'll pray and then we'll open up Luke 19 and try to understand what God is saying today. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks, uh, that you haven't left us floundering in darkness, uh, but you do reveal yourself, your character, uh, your plans uh, to bring all things under Christ. And we pray today, Lord, as we hear your word, and particularly uh, hear from Luke 19, uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. Uh, Give us eyes to see, humble hearts before you, uh, that we would respond in faith to what you're saying, Father. Uh, We pray this in your name and for the glory of your Son. Amen. Now, I heard from uh, James that you've been working through the Authentic Life course in your church over the last couple of weeks. And if you've been coming to that course for the first time, one of the things you would have noticed about Christianity is that it centres on Christ. You can't have a Christianity without Christ. It'd make no sense. Because uh, Christians believe that Jesus, Christ, is the one who reveals God the Father to us. He's the only one who can do that. Jesus is the only one to reconcile us to God through his death. And Jesus is the only one who gives us hope beyond the grave through his resurrection. You can't have Christianity without Christ. Uh, There's a book I read a few years ago called The Incomparable Christ. It's written by a fellow called John Stott. You might have heard of him before. And what he says in this book is, whatever you think of Jesus... Whether you believe he he is who he says he is, one thing that you cannot deny is he has influenced our world unlike no other. Um, And in the book he picks up on how different aspects of Jesus' identity have impacted people throughout the history of the world. And one of the things um, that we're going to look at today is the aspect of Jesus' kingship. Uh, As you read the scriptures, uh, and as we've heard today uh, from Rachel, uh, you can't miss that Jesus is proclaimed to be king. Uh, And as as you start the next series in your church of Christ, the head over all things for the church, I hope this will be a good entree to that series. Um, Christ is head over all things because he is the king God has appointed. So before we look at Luke 19 today, it's worth acknowledging that Luke, uh, we're starting in the middle of Luke's account, actually towards the end of it. Luke is a 24 chapter book. So if we just start at Luke 19, we might miss a few important details. And I just want to draw our attention to two things today. Uh, Firstly, is that Luke is writing to give us an account of Jesus' life. 
Uh, he says in the first couple verses that he's spoken to the eyewitnesses and he's put together an orderly account. The second thing, if you've read Luke's Gospel before, that you may have noticed is that most of the Gospel is actually a road trip. Uh, I've included a verse in the handout today from Luke 9. Let me read it for you. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. From Luke 9 to 19, Jesus is on a journey with his disciples and the destination is Jerusalem. Um, As you read, you'll, you'll hear stories of Jesus performing amazing miracles confirming he is the Son of God. You'll see Jesus teach people about the kingdom of God, but all the way through you're reminded Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And today, Luke 19, he arrives. I hope there's a sense of excitement as you read the gospel and you see Jesus enter the city. This is where the whole gospel has been heading towards, the events that will unfold in Jerusalem. So the suspense has built, and in verse 29, we read Jesus get to the eastern edge of the city. Now let me reread uh, the verses. He gets to the Mount of Olives, and he sends two of his disciples into a nearby village, and he says this to them. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say, the Lord has need of it. It's quite unexpected, isn't it? Jesus finally gets to the big city, the thing that everybody has been waiting for, and he asks them to get a donkey. Now, I grew up in a generation where there was this very popular movie called Shrek. Uh, If you're my age, you might be nodding along. If you've got grandchildren, you might know the movie. And one of the main characters in Shrek is a donkey. And you might know that Donkey isn't portrayed as a very good, smart character. He's quite stubborn, he's a little silly, and he's quite annoying. Donkeys are not magnificent creatures, are they? You'd expect when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he'd get a magnificent horse, maybe a chariot. But he asks his disciples to get him a donkey. Rachel's already drawn our attention to the significance of this. There was a prophecy in the Old Testament uh, that is recorded in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. Let me reread these verses from verse 9. Uh, they're on your handout. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the fowl of a donkey. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the people were told to expect their king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is deliberately, intentionally fulfilling this prophecy. He's directing the events, telling his disciples to bring the donkey so he can ride in. He's saying to the people of Jerusalem, I am that king that you have been waiting for. Now is the time to rejoice. And if you were listening to the rest of Zechariah 9, 
you would have noticed that after that verse of the king riding in, there's a battle scene. Um, And we see that the Lord is with his people, protecting them. In verse 16 of Zechariah 9, it says, On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. And I think these verses in Zechariah interestingly foreshadow the events that will unfold in Jerusalem. Jesus, the king, rides in on a donkey. A battle is about to take place before the vindication of God's people. I think we know with the events of Jesus' death and trial, followed by his resurrection, there's a foreshadowing in Zechariah 9. You may have noticed, though, that all these events are unfolding in Jerusalem. Uh, It's a city that's often in the news these days, sadly, for conflict and many things like that. Uh, But in the Bible, we see in the Old Testament particularly, Jerusalem is a really significant city for God's people. Uh, We know the temple, the place where God meets with his people, the place sins are forgiven, was in Jerusalem. One of the other interesting things about Jerusalem is that it was the city of Israel's kings. Uh, If you've read the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that the kingdom does split and divide, uh, but the kings of the line of Judah still assented in Jerusalem. These aren't just any kings, but they're kings from David's line. In 2 Samuel 7, we see an amazing promise where the Lord says to David, one of his descendants will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. His kingdom will be established by the Lord. And we know that Jesus is this descendant. The king, Jesus, enters the city of kings. And there's one little final detail I thought I'd point out. Um, Did you notice the people throwing cloaks before Jesus as he rides in on a donkey? Uh, There's actually a passage in 2 Kings 9 where we see this happen for another king, Jehu, where he's been coronated. The people throw their cloaks before him. Uh, But all this is to say is Luke is trying to show us, he's trying to highlight and say, Jesus is king. And the question this passage raises is, how will the people respond to their king? Now, before we look at verse 37 and we see the response, uh, may I encourage you this week, take, um, take 20 minutes out and just read all of Luke 19. Uh, you'll notice that Jesus tells a parable right before he enters Jerusalem. I've included this verse in the handout, uh, verse 11 of Luke 19. Um, As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear. Now, I won't read the parable uh, now, but you can read that later today if you'd like. Uh, But two things I'll highlight is that Jesus told this parable because he was near Jerusalem and that they were expecting the kingdom of God to appear. And just one aspect that the parable highlights is the people of a kingdom have their king returning. And the parable talks about how they respond to this king. In verse 37, though, we see the response of the people to Jesus entering. It says, As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the people praise God. They see Jesus as king. They recognise who he is and they joyfully cry out to God. Um, This verse actually quotes a psalm too. 
Psalm 118. In the psalm we see it's a psalm that gives thanks to the Lord for his goodness. It gives thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love for his people. But the psalm also contains a prayer asking God to come and save his people. So interesting that at this point in Luke's Gospel they quote this psalm. And there's one difference though. The psalm merely says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But in Luke 19, the people have now identified that the one is King Jesus. So some people respond to this news with praise and joyful hearts. Uh, But in verse 39 and 40, did you notice there was opposition? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees, some of them were leaders among the people, did not like this news of Jesus' kingship. Did anyone actually just notice what the Pharisees called Jesus? What title they gave him? Anyone want to shout it out? Teacher. The Pharisees called Jesus teacher. They won't acknowledge him as king, but they still give him an honoured title. Being a teacher was an honoured title in Jesus' day. This week I've spent some time reflecting on the difference between a teacher and a king. Are there any school teachers in the room here? Just wondering. No, we have a few school teachers at our church. A teacher is someone that you listen to, someone you learn from, um, someone that you can deeply respect and admire, um, but ultimately a teacher is someone you can disagree with. A teacher is someone that has limited authority. A king is different. A king is much more confronting. A king is someone that you follow no matter what. A someone who demands your loyalty. A king is someone who doesn't just have an opinion, um, but someone that you sacrifice for, someone you suffer for and would even give your life for. The demands of a king are much greater than the demands of a teacher. And the Pharisees were unwilling to call Jesus their king because they knew that Jesus' claim to kingship would turn their lives upside down. If Jesus is your king, it does turn your life upside down. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. I, work, uh, I started work with James on campus at Flinders ES. And um, I think a few years ago, I thought, what was the biggest barrier to people in our culture becoming Christian? And I wondered, is it science? Is it that the idea of miracles is too hard for people to overcome? And as I've talked and met with people over the last couple of years, I don't think that's the case. I think it's Jesus' claim to kingship. Jesus' claim to be the master of your life is the biggest barrier that people have today to becoming Christians. We actually have a dear friend in our Bible study group. He was a friend from my high school and um, he's recently come along this year and he's been really captivated by who Jesus is. Even um, last week he was over and he started quoting some of Jesus' words on money to me. It was very strange because I don't think he's a Christian yet. Um, But I think the final barrier he has to overcome to becoming a follower of Jesus is just humbly acknowledging Jesus as his king. 
question the people of Jerusalem were asked is how would they respond to God's king? The same question is asked of us today. And I suspect in this room, most people would say, yes, Jesus is my king. That's why I'm here on a Sunday morning. That's why I'm part of this church. I come here because Jesus is my king and I worship him. I think there's a challenge if we call Jesus our king to ask, does his kingship extend to every area of our lives? Is there, is there an area of your life which is off limits to Jesus? Uh, two areas I thought we could briefly think about today were money and motherhood. When was the last time you heard a sermon on money and motherhood? Um, I didn't just choose these because of the nice alliteration, but I think Jesus' teaching on money and the Bible's teaching on motherhood or parenting are some of the most countercultural things in Jesus' uh, teaching. So I thought it'd be helpful to spend some time thinking about them today. Um, our Bible college principal often challenges us students to whether Jesus' kingship extends over the way we view money. Uh, he says, of individuals, of businesses, of churches, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you really value. And I think he's picking up on Matthew 6 when Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, in, in the West, I think, one of the core beliefs on money is that no one can tell you how to spend your money. That's completely up to the individual. Uh, yet money is one of the subjects Jesus speaks about most, isn't it? In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think if we truly follow Jesus' teaching on money, our lives will look very different to the world. At times, as we sacrifice for Jesus and the gospel, it would look foolish in the world's eyes. On the handout today, I've actually given a link to an article that was on the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, And the article provides a theological reflection on a popular book called The Barefoot Investor. I'm not sure if anyone's seen that in the shops or read it. Um, I read it a few years ago and it's a book written by an Australian who's very good with money. He has some really helpful practical tips that will teach you to use your money well. Uh, But when I read the book, there were a few things in it that just didn't sit right with me. I couldn't quite name them at first, but there was just a few alarm bells where I thought, is this really how I should live as a Christian? And this article provides a reflection on that book. And ultimately what I think is happening is the author is not a Christian. Jesus is not his king. He's not living to serve Jesus. So some of the ways he suggests you use your money are the security, the trust he puts in money ultimately clash with the idea of Jesus being king. Um, So the big question today, does Jesus' kingship extend over every area of your life? And that includes money. Uh, That's a helpful article today. You uh, you can follow up this week if you want to think more on that. Uh, The other area I think Jesus' kingship clashes with our culture is parenting. Um, I use motherhood because of the nice alliteration, money and motherhood. Um, But does Jesus' kingship extend over your parenting? Uh, So dads, listen in. Uh, And if you don't have children, listen in. Because I think the, the church is described as a family in the Bible. Um, You see Timothy uh, described as Paul's true son in the faith. 
Uh, so there might be those in your church who you disciple, even if you're not a parent. Uh, there's an article I read this week by a lady named Gloria Thurman. Uh, she's a mum who's been through Bible college. Uh, and she moved from America to the Middle East to serve Jesus in a church. Uh, so she's got actually some really uh, helpful insights as she's lived in two very different cultures. Um, and one of the things she says is, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, it can be really hard to not be pressured into the way your culture parents into the idols of your culture. And she asks a few really helpful questions, I thought, in the article. Uh, One of the things she asks is, do I point my children to worldly success as their big goal or to the mission of God as their reason for being? She asks, are we so concerned about our kids' school marks, their future profession, Or are we more concerned about them growing up to love God with all their hearts, all their soul, all their strength and minds? Ashley asks, is Jesus worth the sideway glances I receive from people around me when I parent children, my children, in a way that honours him? I think one of the hardest things about parenting are just the pressure of what other people will think of how you parent. And she ultimately asks, do I care more about what Jesus thinks of how I live my life? or what people think. She provides a great encouragement. I've included this quote on your handout today. She says, The kingship of Jesus and his authority over all things is the sweetest encouragement to this mother's heart. What I need to address first then isn't the rules and cultural norms of mothering where I live. I need to have a renewed vision of who rules our family. Jesus' kingship and authority extends over every aspect of our lives. Um, The Christian faith deeply impacts how we live. Uh, We know we don't live in a certain way to earn our salvation. That's a free gift that is given from Jesus. Uh, But he does become our king and this affects every area of our lives, including motherhood and money. So, so far today we've seen Jesus declared to be king as he enters the city of kings, Jerusalem. We see some people joyfully praise God. We see some people reject Jesus, telling him to rebuke his disciples. The last couple of verses are Jesus' response to the rejection that's going to happen of him. In verse 41, Jesus says, it says this, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build up an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. These last verses give us a real insight into Jesus' response to God's people's rejection of him, of Israel, of Jerusalem's rejection. He weeps for the city. Just note that Jesus is not weeping for the events that will happen in the coming week. He's not weeping for his betrayal by a close friend, Judas. He's not weeping about his arrest his trial, being forsaken by his closest friends and disciples. 
He's not even weeping for the brutal death on the cross which is coming. He's weeping for the people that reject him and knowing the fate that will happen to them. The people of Jerusalem didn't have an intellectual objection to Jesus. It's not that they didn't recognise or see or figure out that he was the Messiah. That was clearly before them. Luke 13 actually helps reveal what's going on. Jesus says these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people of Jerusalem have had a track record of rejecting God and the ones that he sent to it. Jesus wanted to gather these people to him, but they were not willing to come. And if you've read the history of that period, um, you'll know that in AD 70, uh, the Romans came through Jerusalem and they utterly obliterated it. It was brutally destroyed and I think the words of Jesus' prophecy there were fulfilled. The people of Israel did not respond to God when he came to visit them, when he sent his king with an offer of peace and this led to their destruction. I think the application from these verses is particularly to those who do not call Jesus king. Uh, The time to respond to Jesus is whilst he offers peace. The decision to call Jesus your king is not a light one. I hope you've seen that today. It will turn your life upside down because you are no longer the ultimate authority. Jesus is It's not simply about adding a Sunday morning activity to your calendar. It will impact every area of your life. He is a wonderful king though. If you ask anybody in this room or anybody you know who is a Christian, if you ask them what was the best thing that has ever happened in their life, they won't tell you it was a job promotion. They won't tell you it was a 99.95% ATAR for the high school students. They won't even tell you it was a marriage relationship or the birth of a child, even though they are amazing blessings. They would tell you the most wonderful thing in their life was coming to know Jesus as their king. The one who served them and gave his life for them, but now sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. The one who brings peace and offers reconciliation to God. These verses, I think, provide a warning to us. Uh, The people of Jerusalem rejected Jesus as their king and this did lead to destruction. And the Bible does teach of a final day of judgement where we will stand before God and give an account on our lives. And on that day, on our own, none of us are going to stack up. None of us have loved God or honoured him as we should have. And what will matter on that day will be whether we have bowed our knee and acknowledged Jesus as our King. Whether we've accepted his gracious gift of salvation. So if Jesus is not your King today, can I gently challenge you to not put off that decision? It's the most important decision to make in your life. 
responding to the king who offers peace. It'll be the most wonderful decision you ever make. To finish today, uh, there are many aspects of who Jesus is. Uh, but one of the key ones we see in the scriptures is that Jesus is king. Uh, we heard in Revelation 19 earlier that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. As we acknowledge him as king, this leads to a life of joyful praise to God. In the coming weeks, uh, as you look at Christ being head over all things for the church, do remember that Jesus is head because he is the king God has appointed over his people. I'll pray and then we'll have a song. Um, Father, we do give thanks for your word. Thank you that it reveals who you are and how you have acted in sending your son for our sake. We we just marvel at your grace that you would send him with an offer of peace. That though we have rejected you, that we have gone astray, though we're not righteous before you, that he would come with an offer of peace. We pray today, Lord, that you would help us reflect this week uh, just on our lives to, to see if we are truly treating Jesus as our king or just merely a teacher. I pray for anyone in this room who hasn't turned to Jesus yet as King, that even this week that may happen, Lord. They may know the wonderful peace and freedom that comes in acknowledging Jesus as their Saviour and King. We pray this, Lord, for your glory. Amen.